Hey everyone, and welcome to the second episode of Baseline Intelligence, the podcast designed to make you a better tennis player and a smarter athlete. I'm your host, Jonathan Stokey. Today's guest is American tennis player Rajiv Ram. He's currently ranked fourth in the ATP doubles rankings after reaching the finals of last year's Australian Open and winning the US Open. He's going to share with us why he's peaking at age 37, what he looks for in a doubles partner, and what it means to be a good performer on the tennis court. So sit back, relax, and prepare to become a smarter tennis player. All right, Rajiv, welcome to the pod. Good to be here, man. Appreciate you taking the time to be on the show. For those listening, we're recording this episode just before Christmas. Uh, so you're at the tail end of your off season, which we know is one of the shortest off seasons in all of sport. This year, you got to the finals of the Australian Open all the way back in February, reached the semis in Wimbledon, won the U.S. Open, and uh, just recently capped it all off with a Davis Cup appearance four weeks ago. So my first question is, how difficult is it to actually maintain that level of focus and that high level of play for 10 straight months? Yeah, it's, it's a good question. It's something I guess I got to say I never really, well, I always appreciated it about some of the guys who have been able to do it seems like you know for the better part of 10 15 years but uh, I, I never be fully appreciated it because it's it's it was quite difficult you know you have your ups and downs you don't feel great every day and you have to just figure out a way to peak for the biggest tournaments and um you know was really fortunate that that we really felt like we were able to do that this year and put in our best best efforts um you know at the slams and, and some of the other big events you know do you feel like you you mark certain things down on the calendar i mean i'm sure the majors are important to you but are there certain pockets of the year where you're okay if you're maybe performing at like a B plus level instead of an A plus? You know, I, you never want to you never want to go into a tournament thinking maybe you know you don't want to play your best because obviously every time we play we want to play our best. But I think maybe there's certain expectations and you don't just have the preparation you know in terms of how much lead up time you get. For example, like right before Wimbledon per se, there's a couple of grass court events. I mean, it's not as important to be match fit and grass court ready at the first two events as it is at Wimbledon per se, or same with the French or same with the U S open. Now, that being said, you know, every tournament we play quite often is, is a big event. If it's a masters 1000 or a 500, so you do want to give it your best effort and kind of mentally and, and emotionally be there. Maybe if the reps aren't quite as sharp as they would be for the slams, um, that's okay. But, you know, I think making sure we're not going into an event, sort of feeling like, uh, you know, don't really have the energy to get up for it. Like we really did a good job of that this year. Every time we played, we, we tried to bring our, our absolute 100% energy, you know, an emotional level to, to the table. What do you think the bigger challenge is bringing that emotion? I mean, doubles is an emotional sport, right? It's a sprint. You got to be high energy. Is it more difficult for you to bring that emotional level or to bring the physical level because you are... 37 years old. Maybe. I am not young as, yeah. as yeah, you can, you can say it. <laughs> yeah. 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 I mean, you're getting, you're getting older and there are some gray hairs in there, but I have some too, so I can't knock you too much, but you know, that that's gotta be a challenge as well. So what's the harder, harder one of those two to, to maintain? Yeah, it's a good question. You know, I feel like it's still in the, uh, the, the mental side of it is, is a bit difficult. Cause as you said, doubles is such a high energy. There's almost like, there's almost like no release sometimes in singles, you know, when you, when I was playing and, you would know this too. You, you feel like, okay, you go through pockets of the match or even in points where it's just a bit more like you kind of go with the flow, but in doubles, you feel like if you let your guard off just for a minute, you know, all of a sudden that could be a set. And in, in, in the way we play it, a set could be a match because if you lose a set, you're all of a sudden a 10 point breaker at best case scenario. So 
I feel like a lot of the times the emotional mental side of it is, is tougher because you just need to maintain that sharpness throughout the entirety of a match, the entirety of a tournament, if you want to, if you want to perform well. And uh, for me at this point, maybe it's a good thing. Maybe I still have a few more years. It still supersedes the, uh, the physical toll that it takes. Speaking of those, those tie breaks, I, I've thought about that a lot back to when you and I played in juniors, we always got a full third set and yeah. in a way that's relaxing, right? So you win the first set and you know that you've kind of got one in your pocket and they're going to have to beat you in two straight sets and that's difficult. But now, you know, even when you build that set lead, you're a set away from a 10 point tiebreaker, which ultimately, I don't know how you feel about it, but it's probably more like a coin flip. How do you approach that? And, and then how do you approach those 10 point breakers, which ultimately end up being pretty meaningful for you guys? Yeah, you're absolutely right. So, you know, in, in all of the terms we play, except for the slams, you know, you play one good set and then 10 good games and you're at five all, and then you play, you know, five, 10 bad minutes. And all of a sudden you come out on the losing end where you feel like you've played maybe better for three quarters, seven eighths of the match and somehow you lose. But, you know, I think that's part of the reason I was talking about the, the, the energy level has to remain high the entire time and not kind of, you really have to manage not having that, that dip. Um, I will kind of disagree with you in the sense of the, the 10 point breaker though. Cause I do feel like other than like separately from a seven point breaker, a 10 point breaker is long enough to where I, I feel like the better team on the day will usually win it, which I, so I don't really mind playing those breakers. And I think, one of the things that we've really worked on and improved over the last year and a half is, you know, raising our physicality, our energy level, really our physicality in those breakers just to push absolutely as hard as we can, because I feel like that's sort of what gets you over the line. So I don't really fear or, or I guess, you know, worry about the 10 point breakers being such a, a luck of the draw so much. But the fact that, you know, sometimes the sets and, and you can go into those situations and it is obviously shorter than a regular set means that you know, you definitely want to be at your best or, you know, energy wise, emotion wise at your best as much as you can throughout the whole match. Whereas opposed to the longer format, you do feel like maybe the set is, is a bigger lead than it is uh, in, in the regular tournaments. What's an example of how you raise your physicality? What does that look like? Is that, is that how much you guys are moving at the net? Is that just, what is, what does raising your physicality mean? Yeah, so I think it's different for everybody. For us, it's really just an awareness. You know, we, we have this little cue that we just say, you know, 10%, you know, I, I, whenever we play a breaker of any kind, whether it's a, a seven point or a 10 pointer. So it just means that, you know, we just have a, a little bit of, of more you know, awareness. Okay, this is a breaker and, you know, we need to make sure that it is as physical as we get, wh whether that means, you know, pushing as hard as you can on each serve, running maybe just that little bit extra for each ball, really getting as locked in as we possibly can. So it's just, it's not really one specific thing or, or it's not like our tennis is necessarily going to look any different. It's just maybe raising an awareness of the situation that we're in and, and how important each single point is, um, you know, to get the result we want. That's a, that's a great mindset. And I'm, I'm sure that mentality has helped you because I'm sure other teams probably feel pressure in those moments, especially if they're playing you guys and you are now a highly ranked team they might feel pressure in a breaker where you're feeling confident thinking you have the edge because you do believe that you are the better team. Yeah. Yeah. Maybe, and maybe, you know, that, that, you know, look, we, I played the Bryans, I got lucky enough to play them or unlucky enough to play them so many times. And you just felt like in those big moments, those big situations when they were bouncing around, like it was just something was just going to break their way, you know, and it's a lot of pressure when you're, when you're playing against that. And, you know, we try and maybe, you know, we, we've worked more than a little bit on it. We've worked quite hard on it because it was something we struggled with for a while because neither one, Joe and I, you know, we're not maybe outwardly that animated and, you know, just trying to bring that higher level of, of emotion and energy to the table in those moments. So it's, uh, 
you know, if that can also help us as well as make maybe make our opponents feel a little bit more pressure, that that's even better, you know. And I think that's sort of the idea. You just want to tip the scale in your favor as much as you can in those in those situations. Why do you think you're? Maybe you disagree with me, but why do you think you're peaking at age 37 instead of maybe age 27 or 30? Yeah, I don't disagree with you. I mean, first of all, at 27 or or even 30, I mean, I was fully focused on singles, so that's one thing. I don't think. You know, some of these guys that are out here were, were good enough to win slams and be some of the, you know, one of the best players in the world in doubles while still playing a full single schedule and focusing on that. I, that's that's not me. I wasn't wasn't good enough to do that. It was almost like I had to, you know, focus on one or the other to reach my potential. So I feel like the first thing is, is since 2017, I've been only playing doubles and really trying to learn all the nuances and, and be you know, as good as I can. And then the second thing is, this, you know, had this great partnership with Joe Salisbury for now. This is going to be our fourth year next year. So really kind of developing that chemistry and, you know, learning about each other. And, and it helps us not on our good days. It, it helps us more on our bad days, to be honest. Uh, you know, if we feel like we got each other's back and kind of can say one or two things to just, you know, get the other person to, to sort of carry the load if, if you're not feeling it that day. And it gets you through maybe one match where you're not playing your best and gives you an opportunity to play the next day. And that that's sort of, for me, what the best players or teams in the world manage to do is win when they don't when they're not playing well I, I want to touch on that actually in a little bit but what I want to ask you first is you focus full-time on doubles you said about four or five years ago how, how have the practices changed so you said you got more into doubles nuances but what does a day-to-day practice look like when you were playing both singles and doubles versus just doubles so when I was playing both singles and doubles I was fully focused on singles as my primary discipline let's say so each day would be whatever I needed to do to prepare for singles. And then once my singles tournament was over and if my doubles were still going, then it would be, okay, let's play a double set or work on something specifically for the next match or just in general to get better on. But it was definitely second priority. Now, obviously, you know, since there is no more singles, all of those things are first priority to be addressed immediately. So it's whether it's, you know, maybe spending more time with my partner on the same side of the net, working on positions, formations, whatever whatever it may be talking about it more even just thinking about it more again like we, like i just talked about before just an awareness of it it's really all of the above and and so it's very different for me and it, it actually i think is one of the reasons that maybe i've been able to you know as you said peak you know quite a bit later or or still continue to improve is because it was almost like when i stopped playing singles it was like i i had a new challenge and it was like i felt i felt like i started on tour again i felt a bit fresh and it was exciting and 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 just yeah a new way to look at look at what I was trying to do. With all this improvement you've done over the last four years, what is next on your list? Where do you think you need to keep improving to maintain that edge, and then maybe the, you and Joe can kind of reach that top spot in the world rankings? Yeah, we've we've come close, man. We finished two the last two years, and you know just got edged out a little bit. Well, this year we did more than get get edged out, but the year before we were just barely just barely missed it, and the year before that we finished four. So we've been we've been knocking on the door, but I just think. You know, continuing to to try and do our best to to get by some of these matches where we're not playing our best, I would say. You know, I still th- I still think we can get a little bit better at that. And then, you know, we played seven finals this year, and, and we only won two of them. Now, granted, the two that we won were were really big ones to win, but you know, maybe we put ourselves in some great positions. So maybe just closing the door, going going one step further a few times. And then the last thing I would say is that we, we we did better on the clay this year than we have in the past, but I still think we have you know our most room to gain on that surface. And you know we have a lot of big tournaments that you know we play on clay, and um, it doesn't come incredibly natural to either of us. But I still think that we can we can do a little bit better than we have been. 
You mentioned that you've been in seven finals, but you won two. And obviously one of them was a rather big one in the U.S. Open. <laughs> and uh, you and I played, I believe it was exactly 20 years ago. I think 2001, it was. I think, is, is the first time we played. So, you know, the first time we go there, we get rocked four and two. I'll never forget that experience. And then 20 years later, you're holding the trophy over your head in Arthur Ashe Stadium. Can you describe... I, I don't know if it was 24 or 48 hours before the match, but w what is that experience like leading into a Grand Slam final? So it's always different, right? Like, so I've been lucky enough to play in three Grand Slam finals in, in men's doubles, and two of them have been in Australia. In Australia, the, the men's doubles final is on Sunday, and the men's semi is on Thursday. So you play on Thursday, and then you have, like, all of this time to think about it and prepare and go over every possible scenario, and especially – the first one that we played in 2020, it was like, you know, the first slam final for both of us. And you're thinking, my goodness, like, what are you going to do? And I just remember we actually took the day off. We had a really tough semi. So we took that next, that Friday off. And we actually completely got away from the tennis. We didn't go to the site. We went to a movie. We went to dinner, just like completely with like normal people. And then I remember feeling, okay, we had a practice on, on Saturday. And as we kind of got closer to Sunday, it started to get a little easier for me. Like the first little bit after we were in the final was really nerve wracking. Like, you know, I, I didn't know what to do. And I was just thinking, Oh my gosh, I just want the day. I just wanted to get here and you know, whatnot. So that was a different experience when we played the final in 2021 in Australia, we were kind of a bit more used to the, the drill. And so that was okay. Um, and then I actually had the mixed final too, at that point, one day before. So I had another, another match to play, but then at the U.S. Open this year, we actually played our semi on Thursday afternoon and our final on Friday at noon. So we literally had like not even 24 hours, you know, to be between the semi and the final. So it was a completely different um, sort of feeling. And um, we just kind of had to do everything we could to recover, prepare, you know, talk about our semi, prepare for the final, go out the next day. And it was like we were on the court kind of before we knew it. And I actually think that hurt us a little bit. And we came out pretty slow in that in the first set of that final and were able to turn it back around. But it was just such a different experience. I think both of us came out just a little flat at the beginning of the U.S. Open final this year. When you're when you're in a big match like that and you have nerves or, you know, the excitement for that big opportunity, is there anything that you go back to a mental cue that can kind of snap you back into focus? You know, the thing is, is that I used to kind of be afraid of being nervous. Like I didn't want to feel that. But like now, I, you know, you get a little older and I, I'm, I'm so grateful that I am still nervous. You know, after playing the U.S. Open for 20 years, like you said, I mean, it means that I care about it. Right. It means that I want to be there. I want I, I care what happens. So it's almost like those feelings are still the same. And I, I maybe just appreciate it a little bit more and accept the fact that that's part of the game and almost like gravitate towards it a little bit. And, and I'm, I'm totally OK with it. That It's it's almost the feeling doesn't change, but kind of how I react to the feeling has, has changed a lot. And, um, you know, it's it's great, man. There's there's honestly nothing better than feeling like, you know, you get to play for a major title in, in our sport. So I, I you know, I'm, I'm not going to trade that for anything. I think that's great advice. Uh, I think a lot of junior kids run away from those nerves. I know I did when I was younger. I know and I did too. Yeah. 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 I look, I look back at all the time and energy I wasted being nervous for a match instead of just being excited and, and realizing that like we we've talked about before, but pressure is a privilege. And if you're nervous, yeah. that means you're in a big spot and you're doing something you love and, and you should embrace that instead of being you know scared about that. So yeah, exactly. That's great advice. Nerves are not something you shouldn't, you should not want to feel you, sh you know, if you feel the nerves, then that's great, you know, accept it. There's a lot of positives that come out of being nervous, you know? Um, and I think uh, I just try to sort of pay attention to those instead of maybe some of the, the negative feelings, you know? So 20 years uh, between your first U S open and your last, 
what are the biggest tactical differences or differences in the doubles game that you've seen over that time period? I think just like with singles, the players have become better athletes, more powerful, more professional, really, you know, these you know, doubles teams are traveling around with full, full entourages and full teams of coach physio, you know, whatever, maybe each guy has their own coach, you know, and it's, it's, it's a much, it's a much more professional sort of game. Not to say that the guys that, you know, when we started 20 years ago, didn't have, they did the best they could. I just think that everything is advanced, like, like every sport does. And I think, um, tactically, I feel like the first thing is, is if you can't really get some, some good heat behind a serve, it's a, it's an uphill battle, you know, because the guys return so well that, you know, even the best first volleyers are not going to be able to make up for maybe a, a mediocre serve. I think that's the, the thing that we used to see when we first started is like a lot of guys would be able to kind of put the serve in three quarter pace, run in, make a great first volley and be an unbelievable position. And it sounds like if you don't hit the serve pretty big into a decent spot, it's going to come back at 600 miles an hour. And it doesn't matter how good your first volley is, you're going to be, you know, kind of behind the point. And I would say that's probably the biggest tactical change that I've seen. How many teams that you play, is anyone just kind of going to first serves now? You know, I don't feel like it's gotten to that point just yet because I do think that it's very, it's still difficult to rely on that over the course of a tournament. You know what I mean? Like maybe that's going to get you through a match or two or three, but, you know, to get to the end of a major or a big event and, and try and win it, I don't think that's maybe a, a feasible option. That, that being said, guys are still hitting their second serves awfully big, but I, I still feel like there's a difference between first and second. And I just know that like if I'm playing someone who's, hitting two first serves, I still feel like that's an advantage for me because there's something that they're trying to cover up, right? They don't want to hit, they don't want to hurt first volley. They don't trust their second serve as much. There's something there. And, you know, if if they have a day where they just land all their massive second serves, that's just too good. But I just don't feel like that's still, you know, over the long haul a winning solution. And I don't know if you expected to be winning majors at age 37, but I guess I wouldn't put it past you to do it at 57 at this point. What, <laughs> I wouldn't. What, <laughs> yeah, maybe maybe you should actually, but but you know you've seen that twenty year gap. Where do you think the game of doubles is going to be twenty years from now? That's a great question. I, I you know it's so funny that you never know how things evolve. It seems like maybe there things tend to almost go in cycles, right? So maybe there's going to be a time where there's going to be some incredible athletes that come that can you know not go huge on a first serve or a second serve, and 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 you know maybe hit a little bit slower and come in and be so fast and so you know ridiculously good at covering that I don't know but I do think that it's going to continue to progress right I think people are only going to get better physically people are only going to get better mentally and with their recovery and with their teams and I think it's only going to keep pushing forward which is the cool thing about sport is that it's ever changing and usually you know for the better in terms of you know the quality that, that that's being produced do you think I'm crazy because I think in 20 years the distinguish between, you know, what's the difference between a first and a second serve? It'll just be more like a first and a second chance. That that's how I think it's it's, it's going to be looked at. So, I'm going to come up and hit my 130 first serve and on my second chance, I'm just going to hit 130 again. I, yeah. I think second chance I think, I like that. Yeah, like cuz when you say second serve, you think oh, a little bit slower, maybe a little more topspin and that's if you told anyone what's a second serve, that's kind of the visual you have. But much like baseball has gone to all home runs and strikeouts, yeah. right? Like singles, singles mean nothing. And in, in an NBA, it's all dunks and three pointers. And I think if you practice one serve and you got really good at your first serve, you would have the option to be consistent enough to maybe go through seven matches. 
And then you would obviously need a, a topspin serve as a backup or a change up and a change of pace. But am I crazy for thinking that? No, I don't. Honestly, I don't think anything's crazy. I think I, you know, when I turned pro, to think that nobody would ever serve in volley anymore at Wimbledon would have people would have said I'm crazy. But look, it's happened. You know, like people don't come to the net at all at Wimbledon. And in, in the '90s when we were kids, you know, that's all that ever happened. That people, nobody would have ever won the the one Wimbledon from the back except for Agassi did it. You know, like he it had to be that you had to be that special. So I don't think anything's crazy. I also don't think it'd be crazy to think that some of the singles guys who aren't as comfortable at the net will just play two back on their serve, you know, and just be so good from the baseline that it doesn't matter what you do, they're going to be a tough out, you know? So I think that's also an option. Right. But we won't see you doing that in the near future. Yeah, in the near, far future, <laughs> never. I, I, it's not not my jam. So I want to switch gears a little bit, going back to what you talked about earlier with you and Joe and, and the way you communicate in those tiebreakers. But uh, obviously a big part of being successful at doubles is having a great partner. And I obviously can attest to that because most of my double success started once we teamed up. And I think that was when we were 15. I think it was when we were 15, when we were first year 16s at the Easter Bowl. I'm pretty sure it was our first tournament together. Correct. And for forever the record, everyone out there, he asked me to play. I did. <laughs> so I was the bell of the ball. But, um, you know, having a good partner uh, obviously is necessary to be good as a team. You've played with a lot of good players over the years. In your opinion, what makes a great doubles partner? Honestly, I think it's just if you can bring the best out in your partner, that is the, the most important thing. You can communicate in a way you can be open enough to say, look, I'm feeling this today. I'm feeling that. Maybe maybe you're, they're having a great day and you need to step off a little bit or maybe they're having a bad day and you need to kind of you know carry the load. But it's just that sort of I think people think too much about my forehand's better, his backhand's better, my serve, his volley, that kind of thing. And, and all that's fine and good, but I think it's secondary to, to actually like being able to get the best out of your partner. And I think, you know, the best doubles players of all time, you know, that played maybe with a few different partners were always able to do that. Or you have the other extreme, which are like the Bryan brothers, who for me are, you know, the best of all time. They, they only played with each other, but they all, you know, they were so in sync all the time and continually, continually able to, to do that. So that if Bob was having a bad day, Mike was going to pick up the slack and vice versa. And they were able to kind of go through, you know, long stretches of, of being able to win maybe when neither one was at their best, but because they sort of were able to bring that, you know, positivity together. What are some specific things that you do to bring the best out of your partners? Honestly, I don't know that I was that good at it before Joe and I teamed up because I was a bit more into the singles mindset of, you know, you feel something, you keep it in, you keep everything internal because you don't want to show your opponent your uh, your weaknesses or your, or your or your sort of like, you know, what you're feeling out there. You know, I mean, that's kind of how it was when we were growing up. We, we were taught to sort of internalize to, you know, at, like, a, like a poker face almost. You know what I mean? If you're feeling great, you don't want to you don't want to give too much. If you're feeling bad, you don't want to give too much. So I feel like, you know, just that consistency of partner having that feeling that, oh, you know what, we're going to stick this out no matter what allowed me to sort of open up a little bit more about how I was feeling and also receive things that he was feeling a little bit more to then sort of come up with a, a solution together, you know? So I think it, it's something that I've improved on a decent amount that I didn't, I wasn't so good at before. One thing I learned uh, when I was coaching at Duke was that you need to speak to people in this case, it was my players, but you need to speak to them in the way that they want to be spoken to, not the way you would want to be spoken to. Mm. Is that is that a skill that you've learned with Joe specifically since he's your partner now of how he receives information both in a match, under pressure? Is that something you're you're acutely aware of? Yeah, and it's also a little different than coach player, right? Because that's kind of your job as a coach, I feel like, to kind of figure that out. But we 
sort of go about it saying, right, you know, if he says something to me that I maybe don't want to be that thing to be said that particular way, I, I can be like, hey, listen, maybe phrase it like this. It, it you know, resonates a little bit better with me and, and vice versa. So I think part of it's also like on the person who you're talking to to be like, yeah, that doesn't work. Don't say that, especially in a high pressure moment, like, you know, on the tennis court in a match, you, you don't want to hear something to, that doesn't kind of get to you. So I think part of it's also uh, me being aware of those things, but also, you know, us saying to each other, Hey, listen, don't say that, say it like this. And cause I, like you said, I could, it could be the same bit of information, but it could make all the difference in the world, just how it's said. Right. Communication is so important. And obviously this, you know, in tennis, this is the only time you have a teammate. Right. And right. One, one thing my dad used to always say about us was when we were playing at our best, it wasn't one plus one equals two. It was one plus one equals three. And when we were both on the same page emotionally and clicking and having a good time and, and like you said, communicating how we were feeling, we played better than the sum of our two parts. I would and agree with that. Yeah. Yeah. It, it's so important. It's that sweet spot. And that's why it's important to get along with your partner, but not just view them as someone who can hit a good serve so you can finish your volley. You got to treat them as a person and, and, and have that kind of synergy. Yeah. And that kind of comes before all the, all the tennis stuff, I feel, you know? So if you, if you're, a sick puppy. And after you retire, you decide to be a coach like me. Uh, and you were going to coach a young player and their goal was to be where you are a top five ATP doubles player. What's the one skill or trait that you would want to make sure they had? I would want to make sure that they were able to sort of be okay. Firstly with, well, no, I take that back. I would say the, the first thing is there, I would, I would want to make sure that they were able to be like an energetic, good partner as far as somebody you, other people would want to play with, you know, they come on the, they come on the court they bring a lot of positive energy they bring you know a lot of intensity a lot of hustle a lot of fight a lot of those qualities that are kind of contagious that you feel like you could make somebody else you know like when you're on a college team right and there's that one guy that you just play better around because he's got that energy he's got that fire he's got that fight like i would want my player to to have that i don't it, it comes before you know anything tennis wise I, I think that is sort of that sort of can bring the momentum to your side of the net more so than anything else. I'm so glad you, you gave that answer because I think a lot of times players think that that's just coach speak. That's just something we, we want to see as if that's not our goal is not to make them the best player possible. And they always go, yeah, yeah, yeah. We, we, you know, we want the energy, but we'd rather serve well or return well. And, you know, as well as I do in the college game and a lot of great college doubles players have gone on to be professional doubles players energy is so important. You know, if guys came out screaming and jumping around and running around, they could do some amazing things with maybe a physical game that wasn't very impressive. And I th think when, when kids have a weakness in their physical game, they think that's what they have to improve. But I've always thought the first thing that you should improve is that mentality, that energy and that fight. And then the physical skills will kind of follow and, and the energy in the fight can maybe mask some physical weaknesses. Completely. Yeah, we, we actually have a term for it. We call it the performer. And we talk constantly about, you know, how we are as performers out there. And that's got nothing to do with tennis. It's, it's, it's got everything to do with your presence out there. What do you look like? What is it? What is it? What do you look like to the opponent? What do you look like to your partner? What do you look like to the people watching? Like, you know, are you are you performing the best that you can? Because I think that at some point when you talk about trying to win the biggest tournaments in the world, every, everybody can play, right? So it's like, those are the kinds of things that sort of tip the scale and, and make it so where you give yourself the best chance possible. It doesn't always work out, obviously, but it, it gives yourself the best chance possible. Who on your team gives you feedback on how you're doing as a performer? Um, 
we have uh, we're lucky enough to work with a guy called Louis Kaye, who's been in the in the doubles world and in the tennis world for for a long time. He's uh, employed by the LTA, which is the, the British Tennis Federation, um, and just a wealth of knowledge, experience, and all that. And it's funny because I didn't know much about Louis before I first started working with him. And I, I thought he was all about stats and numbers and you know straight lines and and all that. And it's completely the opposite. Like you know, he he talks first and foremost about this kind of stuff and nothing to do with stats. And he's like, all that stuff is, you know, gets thrown out the window if you can't go out there and compete and do all these other things properly. And that is something that's kind of a non-negotiable for us is we, it doesn't, you know, we could get every game plan thing wrong um, before we get that wrong. So we, we have to get that right every single time we play. That's fantastic. And I hope any junior listening is, is really paying attention to that. They know that you didn't just say, hey, you have to have a great serve. You have to have a great return. All those, both those things are, are probably very helpful, but one of the best coaches in the world and one of the best players in the world is very concerned about being a great performer yeah. and not a ball striker. That's fantastic. All right, shifting gears again, I want to uh, get some questions from my Instagram followers. I'll start you with the softballs first. Okay. What's, your, what's your favorite doubles formation and why? Doubles formation, the one that wins me the point. No, I don't know. Um, I think, um, you know, uh, we play we play a, a good mix of of formations. I'm, I'm assuming we're talking about on serve here because that's where you kind of have correct more choice. So yeah, we play a mix of of formations to try and basically keep our opponents guessing as as much as possible. But you know, for me, I've, I've always felt like anytime I can hit my serve, you know, with pretty good pace, a first serve to the backhand side. Let's assume I'm playing a righty. So in the deuce, if I'm serving T or from the, in the Adam serving out Y, that usually puts us in pretty good position to win the point, you know, uh, a stretch backhand returns kind of tricky to get a lot of power on. And my partner's great at finishing the net. So I, I feel like, you know, serving, you know, whatever makes me feel the best to hit those particular serves. Well, usually puts us in a real good position. Who calls the service play you or Joe? You know, we, we mix it up a lot. And that's kind of one of those things is if we have to have that communication, if Joe calls something, even if, it's, even if it's on his own serve and I'm like, hey, listen, I don't like that. I'm not feeling that. I don't see, I see this. Like we have, you know, we have that talk. And a lot of times, you know, for me, if I'm not feeling great, if I'm feeling a little bit unsure, a little nervous, like we've talked about nerves before, I, I, I accept it. And I say, hey, Joe, you call this play because I'm not, I'm not feeling it right now. Um, but generally the server is going to call the play because they're the ones controlling it. But it doesn't mean it's an always thing for us. We, we kind of go based on how, how we're feeling in the moment. If you guys have a disagreement, does the old man get the tiebreaker? <laughs> uh, we talk it out. He can be quite stubborn. So can I. And you should, that's why we have a, a coach around to hopefully settle the disagreement. <laughs> What's your favorite d- drill to do in practice? My favorite drill to do, we, we, I don't know if it's my favorite. We have this game that we play called volleyball, which uh, basically, you know, we serve each other to, you know, their side. So Joe plays the deuce, I play the ad. So he serves to me, I serve to him. And, and you can only win points in your serve. And if the returner wins a point, it's a side out, if you will, just like volleyball. So the other person gets to serve. And the only thing you do is tell the returner where to return. So if, you know, you return down line or cross court, depending on what kind of formation you're playing. I don't know why we play it quite often. It just seems to get us sort of sharp. I think a lot of it is that we don't want to lose to each other. So we kind of really get our competitive juices flowing in this particular game. And uh, yeah, it seems that whenever we do that game well, we seem to, you know, play pretty well. I'll be sure to add that one to to one of my next practices. Uh, how do you avoid burnout? That's a real good question. Um, we definitely don't overplay. I think I think we only played 20 tournaments this year, which is pretty light compared to some people 
um, we definitely make sure we take our breaks and take our time off and take our time away from the court. And also, honestly, there's burnout in doubles from, from each other. We, we probably have had seven to 10 dinners together all year and we've spent quite a lot of time together. So, you know, we see each other at practice, at lunch, at the hotel, just, you know, randomly. And so we, we kind of make it a point not to overdo it. Um, so I think there's burnout in a lot of different ways that can make you not want to, you know, and not as motivated, let's say. And um, we do keep that in mind and try to, you know, work around that as best as, as best as we can. And final question, what's the most memorable experience you've had on the tour that didn't happen on a tennis court? The most memorable experience I had on the tour that didn't happen on a tennis court. It's a, it's a good question. You know, I think just generally, I'm not going to point out one thing, you know, one specific one, but the relationships that you're able to build and the people that you're going to get, you know, you get to know. And I mean, I've gotten to travel the world and see things and meet people that I've no way would I have done so had it not been for tennis. And even talking to you, I mean, we've known each other for, like you said, 20, 25 years now. And, you know, we all go do different things and different paths and, and all that. But it's the common thing that we have with each other is, is the sport that we either played together or played against one another or whatever. And I think, you know, I, I have these relationships with people now from all over the world that are going to be there forever because you kind of have this common ground of the sport. And I think that is sort of, uh, for me, the, the coolest thing, maybe, maybe even including all the things I've done on court that you get out of tennis. Yeah, that's the thing I've noticed. I mean, you know, we're both getting older and, you know, most of the coaches are people that you and I grew up playing with. And tennis is just the sport that you, you build these amazing relationships with and they're, they're a lifetime. Yeah. Um, and I'm sure you more than anyone has had uh, an incredible amount of experiences and have come across a bunch of great people. So that's fantastic. Hey, look, I appreciate you taking this time. I know, like I said, it's the shortest off season in the world. <laughs> uh, so the fact that you're taking, you know, 45 minutes to an hour to, to talk to us and hopefully make us better people and players. Uh, I really appreciate that. And I would like to say there is a part of me, the better you do, the worse my name looks on all these little junior tennis boards where we were champions. Cause everyone's looking now wondering who's that lucky guy <laughs> that got to play with Rajiv Ram. So I am very <laughs> proud of you, but all my players think I'm luckier and luckier, the better you do. Listen, I'm, so. I'm still convinced. I'm still convinced that if we did this together, we would have been pretty good. I'm still convinced of that. I think and a lot, it's not just me too. So you, you can, you can take that for what it's worth, but I still feel like uh, we would have had a, we had a pretty good time out here if we had played together. I'm going to cut that clip, <laughs> save it and bring it to my practice tomorrow. That's, that's the point of the podcast right there. All right, Rajiv, uh, thanks for joining. Uh, have a safe trip to Australia and good luck to start the year. All right, man. Thanks a lot for having me. It was great. All right. I want to thank Rajiv again for joining us today. My biggest takeaway was how important it is for him to be a good teammate and a good performer on the court. Of all the talents he values in a partner and all the things he could focus on in his own game, the concept of being a good performer with positive body language and energy kept coming up consistently. Take it from one of the best doubles players in the world. If you want to be a great partner, start with your energy and court presence and then go from there to your physical game. I want to thank you all for listening. I know there are a lot of podcasts out there, and I'm grateful you chose to join me today. I'm motivated to evolve and improve, so please subscribe if you enjoyed the episode and leave a comment or review so we can keep getting better every week. For more, check out my Instagram, at Stokey Tennis, for clips from these podcasts, as well as general drills and tips to help your tennis game. Thanks for listening. I hope you just improved at tennis without even hitting a ball.